All right, Two City Church, it is Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving's on Thursday. What do we do on Thanksgiving? We eat a lot of food with people who stress us out, right? <laughs> Some of you go, I do that every day. Okay, well, welcome, guys. Uh, what's up with America? I mean, we have, uh, we like to put all of our holidays together, don't we? There's Halloween or Reformation Day, I get it. Okay, then there's Thanksgiving, and then there's Christmas, and then there's New Year, and then, then we're done for seven months with all of our holidays. Well, what we like to do as a church, as the year ends and a new year begins, is we take up a special offering. It's called the Hold the Rope Offering. And I just want to take a moment to tell you about this. If you're new, you've, this will be new to you. If you've been around for a while, you've asked me, are we going to do this again? And yes, we've been doing this since 2018. You go, well, that's not that long. Well, we're not that old, okay? We're only six years old, and this is gonna be our fifth year doing this. And let me just tell you why we do this. When we, whenever we came to Winston-Salem uh, six years ago, we didn't know a lot, but one of the things that, not that we know a lot now, but one of the things early on that we wrote down and we put it on all of our papers and we told everybody when we came here, we said, we're in Winston, but we're for the world. Uh, maybe another way to say it is we're rooted locally, we're reaching globally. We wanted to be a, maybe put these words together, we wanted to be a local church, right? We, we care about the globe, but we're rooted locally. And that's one of the reasons, because of your generosity, we're able to build a facility in the heart of our city because we love our city, but we also love our world. And so we were asking year one, year two, what can we do as a church to help local, national, global ministries go further faster? Now, why are we able to do that? One is because you guys are so consistently generous, just giving to our church of your time, talent, treasure, that all of our needs are met. We have been self-sustaining since day one and God continues to meet our needs. So a few weeks ago, a guy calls me up and he says, you know, God, uh, he's talking to his wife and he said, God has just really, really blessed our business this year. And we know the economy's changed and we gave a gift last year to the Ford Initiative, but God has so blessed us that we want to give an additional gift to the Forward Initiative this year of a quarter million dollars. Unbelievable. And I just am so humbled because I'm thinking, God, you continue to go ahead of us and meet all of our needs. And so what we want to do is we believe that we believe in an abundance mindset. We believe that generosity begets generosity and stinginess is also very contagious, okay? And so what we wanted to do is we want to say, okay, what does it look like for us to be generous as a church? And so we came up with something called Hold the Rope. Now, why do we call it Hold the Rope? Well, it's actually a very famous story that I want you to know. There was a guy named William Carey and he wanted to go to India. Now, have you ever been to India today? If you go to India today, I've been there one time. It's hard to get there. And by hard to get there, I mean, it's a 15 hour flight. Back then, going to India, you packed your coffin with you. This is what all missionaries did. I don't know that I'm coming back. There's no Facebook, there's no FaceTime, there's no international phone plan. You, you may get a letter, you, you may never come home. And so he said, I'm gonna go to India. But then he said to his best friend, Andrew Fuller, he said, I'm gonna go to India. But he said, it's gonna be like going into a deep well. He said, I'm willing to go if you promise to hold the rope. And Andrew Fuller, his best friend, spent the rest of his ministry telling people about William Carey and raising money. Now, so often, here's what we tell missionaries, go buy your own rope. And we're not gonna do that. We're, we said, we wanna hold the rope. So here's what we're doing. We've chosen, a lo we've chosen strategic local, national, and global partners who over the next four to six weeks, we're gonna tell you who they are. But I just wanna take a minute and tell you why local, why national, why global? Here's why local. We wanna partner with all the expressions of the body of Christ in our city to reach people. And here's the truth. A lot of these ministers in our, in our city, they've been here long before us. They're doing really hard work. And you know this, but let me just say it out loud. When you minister to the spiritually and the financially poor, they can never repay you. The, the, these, most of these ministries that minister to the least and last and leftovers of our city, they're never gonna be self-sustaining. So we're gonna come alongside them and say, here's a big check. God loves you, we love you, go, go further faster in your ministry. Secondly, we're gonna partner nationally. Why? Because we love our nation, right? 
We don't think it's the job of Christians to save America. Now, that may be the job of a political party, fair enough. But we think that the, the job of Christians is to save Americans. And the way we do that is by planting more churches. So we're gonna tell you about some church plants that we're real excited about and how we're partnering with them. And then finally, we want to increase our global footprint. We care about our neighborhoods. We care about our nation. We care about the carpool line. We care about the Congo. We care about all of it. <laughs> and so what we're doing is we're gonna be unleashing and unveiling and telling you all of our strategic partnerships. But let me just say this, here's our goal. We don't have a financial goal. The first year we did this, we raised $50,000. Last year, we raised $400,000. I don't know what we're going to raise this year. That'll depend on the generosity of all of us. But we don't have a financial goal. We have a participation goal. We want to see 100% of the people who call to Cities Church Home to give a one-time gift above and beyond general tithes and offerings to hold the rope. 100% of it is going to go right through us to these partners. Here's what we want to do. It, you know, ministry is, can be, for many people, discouraging. We want the first phone call of 2023 to be, you know, imagine this phone call. We love you here's 20 grand. We love you, here's 50 grand. And it's been a hard year. The last few years have been hard. We wanna help you go further, faster. We want this to be the first fruit. So let's pray about that together right now. And then let's dive into Mark 13. Lord, we thank you for, uh, as I think it's 2 John or 3 John, says that people go out for the sake of his name. And the Bible says, honor such people. And we wanna honor them, Lord. We wanna encourage them. We want to fuel and fund what they're doing. We pray for them, our, the, the local partners in our city, the national church planners, the global missionaries, Lord. I, I pray that every person in here would, would have a conversation with themselves, have a conversation with you, not just think about it, pray about it, would have a conversation with their spouses or their kids. And may this just be such a joyful time, Lord, of an ability to give what you've already given us to help others go further faster. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, you can type two, turn two, swipe two, scroll two, find your way to Mark 13. I'm gonna meet you there in, I don't know, probably like seven or eight minutes because I've got to do a big intro on Mark 13. You go, why? Well, we're, I don't know, we're in the fourth quarter, we might say, in the book of Mark. We are, if you love baseball, we are rounding third base. We only have a few weeks left in the gospel of Mark. And today, you'll see in a minute, this is gonna be kind of a different sermon. It's more technical. It's a little more tedious. It's because if you look at Mark 13, it's almost all red letters. Do you see that? If you have a red letter Bible, you're like, it's all red letters for the most part. In fact, here's what's interesting. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the longest and largest teaching Jesus does. Now, he does a longer teaching in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He does some longer teachings in Luke. But if you're coming to Mark, this is his longest teaching. And if you're talking about Matthew, and if you're talking about Luke, it's his last teaching. So what is Jesus going to talk about when he's about to head to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to head to the cross? Is he going to talk about faith? Well, by implication, yes. Is he going to talk about marriage and money? Those are some of his favorite topics. No, he's not going to talk about that. Is he gonna talk about the cross and the resurrection? Those are huge topics. He's not gonna talk about that. Here's what Jesus is gonna talk about we're gonna talk about for the next 40 or so minutes, the future. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is going to spend, well, it's gonna be 37 verses, and he's going to talk about, here's the word, you showed up, you're, the, you know, you're committed, you showed up at the nine o'clock service, or 9.15 service, so I'm gonna give you a big word. He's gonna talk about eschatology. What is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of last things. It's the study of the end of the world. And, and it's interesting because when I thought about this, here, here's, here's whenever you talk about last things, we're gonna talk today about the return of Christ. Now, my guess is most of you have never really heard a sermon on the return of Christ. Why? Because we don't talk about it anymore. There, there, there's two extremes when it comes to the return of Christ and the end times and eschatology. It's the same extremes that people take when you're talking about demons or something. It's either to obsess over them, that's not healthy, to obsess about signs and wonders and charts and end times and dates and current events and Bible codes, 
or to completely ignore them, right? Now, have you ever met somebody who's kind of obsessed with the end times? I've known some people like this, right? They're like drawing charts with crayon on the back of a cereal box, right? Have you seen these people? Their favorite Old Testament book is Daniel, especially just the last six chapters. Their favorite New Testament book is Revelation. Their favorite fiction book is Left Behind, okay? <laughs> All 14 of them. Um, I'm not as worried for us as a church about we're being too obsessed. I'm worried that we're ignoring it. I'm worried that you never, ever think about Jesus Christ returning. I, I, you don't ever pray about it. We'll see this at the end. You, you're, you're supposed to fast for it. Part of your Sabbath is supposed to be thinking about it. Now, when we talk about these things, here's what people say. I, I always try to think, like, when I'm ever preparing my sermon, I'm, like, thinking, like, that the most modern person is, I'm having a conversation with a very modern person. Uh, and here's what I think a person would say today. Oh, I can't believe you Christians and the end of the world. And I can't believe that you think about the end times and you think about how everything's going to end. It's like, so does every American, right? What, I mean, how many zombie shows do we need, <laughs> right? Well, I think the America, in America at least, and probably anywhere, um, there are four major ways people think the world's going to end if you're not a Christian. Number one, something with the environment, Right, the radical environmentalists, we're not against, you know, we're not saying climate change isn't real or global warming isn't real, but right, there's this whole thing with the environment. In the 70s, it was, we're gonna have way too many people, we're not gonna be able to feed everybody, don't have any kids. China does a one-person policy. They're, they're, okay, so that's one thing. Okay, the second thing is, um, first is something with the environment, second is gonna be something with war. Right? I mean, now we have nuclear weapons, and so is it going to be Kim Jong-un? He's got nuclear weapons, North Korea does. Russia has them. Iran has them. What's going to happen with war? If it's, if it's not one of those things, um, how about pandemic or plague? That's another way that people think the world's going to end, right? We kind of had experience with that with COVID, right? Come, Lord Jesus, and please bring toilet paper and hand sanitizer if you're coming, please. We had that experience. So we ha we've had many different ways that people think about the end times. An another very common one is, oh, aliens or artificial intelligence, right? That, we saw that with, we see this in movies, right? You see this with movies back in the day like Terminator. Nowadays, people are less worried about aliens. They're more worried about artificial intelligence. Elon Musk is going to create something that's gonna kill all of us, right? This is kind of the fear. <laughs> And so, and so what I want us to see here is Jesus is gonna talk about the future today. And I don't want us to get, this is gonna be a technical sermon. I'm gonna to try to keep it as simple and straightforward. And hopefully we're not gonna get lost in the trees, but we're gonna look at the whole forest. But let me give you the big idea of, I think, what Jesus is saying here and what Christians have believed. And, and then we're gonna look at the passage for the rest of the time. Here's the big idea. That what you believe about tomorrow affects how you live today, obviously. That what you believe is next affects how you live right now, obviously. Whatever people believe about the future of the stock market at any given time affects what they do with their money right now. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's not gonna talk so much, he's gonna give us some details and some events, but he's gonna talk a lot less about what we need to be looking for and a lot more about how we need to be living in light of the future. So let's look at all that together. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse one. Here's what it says. And as he came out of the temple, by the way, this is gonna be the end of Jesus' interaction with the temple. So many of the last chapters, he was in the temple, cleansing the temple, debating in the temple. He's done with the temple now. One of his disciples said to him, we don't know who, which one, 
Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to, the, said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse three, and he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And we're gonna get into this. So here's what happened. In fact, I had an opportunity uh, Pastor Dave and I were taken by somebody and partnered with another church. And for the last 12 days, uh, I spent in Israel. So here's what's really neat. Uh, Jesus sits here and gives this sermon to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. I had the opportunity four days ago to stand on the Mount of Olives. And so what happens is when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you, it's, uh, I stood roughly where Jesus sat and taught this. You can look over the old city of Jerusalem and you can perfectly, it's not there anymore, you can perfectly see where the temple was. And so Jesus is looking out on this temple and he tells them that it's going to be destroyed. Now you have to understand how big of a deal this was for the Jewish people. We, we don't really in America today, even in Christianity, we don't really have an idea of, sec, or of, of sacred space. So they had an idea of sacred, for them, the temple, it was where heaven and earth came together. The temple was where the felt and manifest presence of God dwelt. The temple was the place of worship. The temple was the place of sacrifice. And Jesus is looking at it going, all of that, all of your religion is gonna be, because that's what it represented, the religion and the external. He said, it's all gonna be torn down. But also, and this is something I learned this week, the temple meant a ton to Herod. Herod's not a Christian, but Herod, what he did is he expanded and he enhanced this temple. And it was a place of pride for him. It was a place of strength. He would invite his friends to see the buildings that he had built. So both to the religious person and to the secular person, Jesus says, I'm going to tear down something. Something is gonna be torn down that you really value. Here's, I think, the principle, and we've got a lot to talk about today. The principle is often Jesus has to tear down things in our life that we love to put himself at the center, right? Uh, every person I've ever met, for the most part, who's come to Christ is because God tore something down in their life that they were hoping in. You don't normally meet the guy and he's like, I got the great job and I got the BMW and I've got the great you know, spouse and my kids are great and my health is awesome. And I just, because of all that, I came to Christ. You normally meet somebody and they say, well, I actually had put a lot of my hope in my health and, or maybe a woman, it'll be in my beauty. And, and those things are beginning to fade and they're not there anymore. And I need to find a place to put my hope. It can't be in that. Or you meet somebody who they put all their hope in their career or they put all their hope in their money. Or you meet somebody and they put all of their hope in getting married and then they get married and it's hard. And God works in all these things. So the first thing he tells us, he says, the temple is going to be destroyed. In fact, this is actually a really important thing because until the temple was destroyed, Christianity was seen as a small sect of Judaism. I'm speaking historically here. When the temple was destroyed, Christianity for the first time in the eyes of people has its own sphere and is seen as its own religion. But they've got more questions. Let's look here. So here's what they ask. Verse three, continuing. Peter and James and John and Andrew. So it's, it's the core three that we always talk about in Andrew. They asked him privately. So they asked him privately a question. Tell us when these things, sorry, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished. So the first thing they ask is like, give us a timeline. Now it's interesting, time is very important, right? I mean, if you ask the question, what time is it? I mean, we ask that all the time, right? Your kids will ask you that. We all have watches on. We're looking at our phones all the time. We're always asking what time it is. At the deepest level, what time is it is a theological question. 
Uh, God created time. In fact, what you live in, this is kind of a deep thought real quick, but you live in, we live in four dimensions, height, width, depth, time. So time is the sphere in which God works. And, and basically, according to the Bible, God starts time at creation. The very center of time, I don't mean it's the exact middle of all time, but the center of time is Christ coming at the cross. And the end of time is Jesus Christ is going to return visibly bodily from the sky. So they're asking, what time is it? Now, here's what I want you to see. Jesus is not gonna respond with a bunch of dates and a bunch of Bible codes and a bunch of watch these cultural events. Watch what he says. I want you to see this. Here's, here's the advice. And these are the practical things we need to start looking at. Verse five. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So the first thing he says is when you, look into the, when you think about the future, when you think about end times, when you think about the return of Christ, the first thing I want you to know is don't be led astray. It's the call to spiritual discernment. You know, it's, and I think here's the principle here. The more you're looking for signs, the more likely you are to be deceived. I remember I was in Myrtle Beach and was with a bunch of Christians. This is when I was in college. And uh, we met this guy there and he was, he was, he was a genuine Christian, but he's a little, a little bit of a wacko and a weirdo when it came to the end time stuff. You know, you've met, maybe you met these kind of people. And I remember he said to us, he came over to us one time and he said, man, he said, did you know that the mark of the beast is on every Coca-Cola can? And we were kind of playing around with him because he's a little, I said, really, tell us. And, and I'm thinking, is he gonna go with the barcode? He says, well, it's, he says, it's, it's the numbers on the bottom of the Coke can. And so he, he gets, well, I'll show you. He grabs a Coke can. He says, all right, look at this. He says, uh, 666 is on every bottle. He says, okay, look at this. Three, one, two. See, three plus one plus two equals six. And then, my, then he looks at it again. He goes, all right, he goes, let me show you again. It's 666. He goes, okay, seven, four. Okay, this one's tricky. He's... <laughs> I promise that I was like, okay, this guy, the more you're looking for signs, the more you're gonna try to see things that are not really there. Um, have you ever heard of David Koresh? David Koresh, the Waco, Texas uh, cult leader. I uh, heard a story recently about uh, one of the, the special forces that had to go in there. He was a Christian. Special forces had to go in afterwards and something like 20 people um, had been killed um, in this cult following. And as the guy tells the story, this Christian guy, he said, I had to go in there. He said, I still, to this day, this is years ago. This happened in 1983 or something like that, 1993. Anyway, um, he still says he has nightmares about it. But he said he went in there and when he was there and when they were cleaning out the bodies and when they were cleaning up all the mess, he said, I committed, I made a vow to God that I was going to know my Bible well so no one could deceive me. So this is why, by the way, this is why we do everything we do here. Why do we do Bible preaching? Why am I trying to always point it back to the text? It's not my idea. It's I want you to see this truth in the text. So the first thing he says is do not be discerned or do not be deceived. And he says that there's gonna be many false teachers. In fact, he'll say this a little bit later. Here's my question. Who are you listening to, right? Are you reading the Bible more or listening to Joe Rogan more, <laughs> right? I mean, we have the prophets of our day. I'm not saying everything they say is false teacher, but how many people are obsessed with Ben Shapiro? They're obsessed with Bill Maher. They're obsessed with John Stewart. We spend so many times listening to different YouTube, right, for, for a long time, for decades, you know who the high priestess of our nation was? Oprah Winfrey. Do you guys remember that? Remember when Lance Armstrong had to come on to be forgiven of his sins? Who do you meet with? The high priestess of our nation. Oprah, and she forgave him on public TV. So he says, you gotta be careful who you're listening to. What podcasts are you listening to? What YouTubes? The loudest and most consistent voice in your life needs to be the scriptures. First thing he says is, do not, be astray, do not be led astray. Second thing he says is, do not be alarmed. Look at verse seven. 
He says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is important. We're going to return to this. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So here's what Jesus is trying. He's trying to give us the right perspective and expectations for our lives, right? Every parent knows this. The best thing that you can do for your kids is to try to give them in every stage of their life as they enter it the right expectations and the right perspective for that. I mean, how many of us entered marriage with the completely wrong expectations and it's why we're so discouraged in our marriages? How many of us entered our careers with completely wrong expectations? I gotta work 40 hours a week? I only get two weeks of vacation? Right, we have these completely wrong expectations for our life. Jesus is telling us the right perspective and the right expectations because then you won't be surprised or as surprised and as alarmed when it happens. They've done studies to show you that basically when you're, if you're taking your kids, I'm not saying you should do this, but if you want to, if you take your kids to a haunted house during Halloween, they will be less scared if you tell them what's going to happen beforehand. Hey, people are going to jump out. They're not real. It's all fake. They're not going to touch you. My wife, whenever we go to an amusement park, we want our kids to ride all the rides. We don't want to ride rides without them. So what we do is we go on YouTube beforehand and we show them all the rides. This one goes upside down. This one's got a big drop. This one does this. All of a sudden, they're not as afraid because they know what to expect. The, the Christian in suffering should be the calmest person in the room. We should be a non-anxious presence. Now, the sad thing is many Christians, we didn't do very well during COVID. We freaked out and we flipped out and we acted like God was not in control of those who are in control. And some of us lost our witness for a season by how we acted in suffering. Now, he tells us there's two big categories of things that are gonna happen. I just wanna name them. So there's lots of things. He said famines and wars and nations and uh, earthquakes. And okay, here's what theologians break that into. There's natural evil that's gonna increase in our lives and there's moral evil that's gonna increase in our lives. Now, what is the difference between that? Natural evil is suffering that comes into your life but is not from a person. So earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes, hurricanes, storms, Illness and injury, sickness, cancer. They come to you and you don't look at one person and say, you did this to me. This, is, this came from the evil heart of a person. It's just like, no, this is what it means to live in a broken, sinful world. That's called natural evil. The second big category is moral evil, right? So he gives the earthquakes. Then he says, there's gonna be wars. There's gonna be nation after nation fighting. There's gonna be kingdom against kingdom. He says famine. Now here's what's interesting about famine. Sometimes famine is a natural evil. Sometimes famine is a moral evil, right? So historically, it's been more of a natural evil. Hey, we just can't, it didn't rain and we don't have enough crops and there's famine. Most places today where there's famine, it's because there's a dictator in government who's not feeding his people and distributing food. So then it becomes moral evil. So he basically says, okay, there's gonna be natural evil, there's gonna be moral evil. Then he gives us, what it, he said, here's the perspective of what you have. This is so helpful. Do you see at the end of the, what I just read you? He said, it's birth pains. Now, Jesus is not, now, if, he, if it was only him who said this, it'd be enough. But Jesus isn't the only one who talks about birth pains. The apostle Paul, in Romans 8, when Paul talks about all the suffering we're gonna go through, he as well uses the image and the illustration of birth pains. Now, I know as a guy, I can't talk about giving birth. I'm not allowed to, right? Because it's just, I know, it's, it's for women, it's unbelievably painful. But here's what I want you to, here's the, here's the image. If you go to the hospital and you go on a floor and you hear a woman screaming, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the answer is it depends on what floor you showed up on, <laughs> right? 
Did you show up in the oncology unit? Did you show up in the ED? Or did you show up in the labor delivery unit? His whole point is, as the frequency and the intensity of natural evil and moral evil increase, life is on the other end of all this. That's, that's his point. He's trying to give us hope so that we'd be a hopeful, non-anxious, calm presence in the midst of suffering. And I've seen this. There's a lady in our church recently, and she just got diagnosed with cancer, and, and there is just a calmness about her. There is a trusting of Christ. There is a hopefulness of the future that is just so evident, and it became more evident as suffering came into her life. So the first thing Jesus says is don't be led astray. You gotta be discerning. The second thing he says is don't be alarmed. But then look what he says in verse nine. Be on your guard. If we wanna keep it with the A's, it might be don't be led astray, don't be alarmed and be aware. But be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Jesus' longest teaching at the end of, on, on the end times has to do with persecution of Christians. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, this isn't a prophetic word because I don't know, but I don't know if we're ever going to get a first century church until we get a first century environment. People go, I want a first century church. I want the power. I want the witness. I want the conversions. I don't know that we're ever going to get a first century church power without a first century church environment. Now here's what he tells us, that we're gonna experience persecution. What is persecution? Well, there's, it's, I'm gonna give you a couple categories, but persecution is basic, persecution happens when there's a collision of values. That'd be the simplest way to talk about persecution. That's what it happens. That's why there hasn't been a ton of persecution over the last couple hundred years in America. Because though not everybody was a Christian, there were similar values. That's what, by the way, that's what peace is. If you ever want to know what peace is, right? Because people act like peace is so easy. Peace is not easy at all. Peace isn't easy in your home. Peace, peace isn't easy in your marriage. Peace isn't easy with your kids. Peace isn't easy in your business. And believe me, peace is not easy in a nation. How does peace happen? We have the same values and they're roughly in the same order. What's happening is the Christians are becoming more and more a minority. The nation is becoming post-Christian. In some places, it's really still pre-Christian. Gospel never really fully got there, parts of the Northwest. And so you have a massive difference in values. Now, let me tell you about persecution. Persecution, I want us to know this. Again, not because I'm a doomsday person, but because I want us to have the language and categories so when this happens, and I think it is happening, we, we see how it happens. Persecution goes in four places, and it goes in an order. There's social persecution, then there's economic persecution, then there's political persecution, and then there's physical persecution. That's the order. So I told you I was in um, Israel the last 12 days, and when I was there, one of the things that they do, the tour guides do, is they take you to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. So I had been three or four times to the Holocaust Museum in DC, recommend going and seeing that. A whole different experience doing it in Jerusalem. And your tour guide is Jewish. And, and there's Orthodox Jews everywhere walking around, and you're experiencing, okay. Now, here's what you see in there. You see that the Nazis persecuted the Jews in exactly that order. So if you want to picture, like it's a little bit of like a amplified version of how does persecution happen? Okay, here's what they did. The first thing they did with the Jews, first thing Hitler said is no more, no more dating Jews. 
Don't kiss a Jew, don't marry a Jew, don't sleep with a Jew. What is that? It's a version of social. Now, how does this happen with us? Well, it's hard because a lot of us, we just want to be liked, right? Let me just take the pressure off all of us. It's okay if, if not everybody likes you. I, I, we all have that feeling. We just want to fit in. I mean, I know I'm not cool, but I'd like to at least just fit in. You know, I'd like to maybe be respected. I don't want to be seen as too different. I don't want to be uninvited or not invited to things. Okay, so the first thing they do with the, the Nazis did with the Jews is they did social persecution. Just don't hang out with them. The second thing they did was economic persecution. I think it happened on April 7th. They, they said it was about a week after, it happened so quickly, right after they made some things about the social, they said, no more buying or selling to Jews. Here's what this is gonna look like in America, and it's already happening in some places. There will be certain careers that will be almost impossible to be a Christian in. Um, I, there was a, I forget where he was, the head of plastic surgery. He'd been in it since like the 80s. The head of plastic surgery at some big medical center just ha- I saw an interview with him. He just had to quit his job. He was like 30-year tenure attending doctor there. And he said, basically, the environment with this plastic surgery stuff now is so, um, they're pushing the agenda that you have to, if you're a plastic surgeon, you have to help women look like men. And you have to help men look like women. And he tried every right way and every humble way and every, well, you can do that, but I'm not gonna do that. And they finally said, you're done. And he was the head of it. I mean, can you be an evangelical Christian and a 10-year professor in the humanities at an Ivy League? It's like a joke. It's like, probably not. The statements you'd have to sign even to get in would be so anti-Christian, you probably couldn't be a part of it. I don't know all that's happening, but there's economic. The third thing there is, is political, right? Here's what, here's what they did with the, the Jewish people. The Nazis basically started to create these ghettos and they used political power to take people out of their homes and put them in these ghettos. What does political persecution look like today? It's hard to exactly say, but I know, I, I'm pretty sh- certain that I know the center of it. What's happening right now is there's a conversation in our nation about what is the highest value. Is it religious liberty, which is what it's been since day one, or is it erotic and sexual liberty? That's the conversation our nation's having. Historically, it's been, hey, religious liberty, no matter what you want to believe, that's the highest value. And that's, that's what allows pluralism to flourish in a nation. We don't believe, by the way, Christians don't believe in relativism. All values are equal. We believe in pluralism. Because the truth's going to win. Let there be a marketplace of ideas. But religious liberty has to be the highest value. Today, what is becoming the highest value is erotic and sexual liberty. It's not that I want to talk about this stuff all the time. I don't get excited about talking about transgender stuff and the sexual this and the, I don't get, I, I'd rather not talk about it. But it's just showing up everywhere. Finally, there's physical persecution, which we're not, we're not there yet. There are many places in the world where this is the reality. Where I, but that's, that's how you get there. You get there from social to economic to political to finally physical persecution. Well, Jesus says, Here's what I want you to do. Look here, verse 10. Verse 10 says this. And the gospel, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, here's another, do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, 
for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He basically says, look, persecution is going to increase, but the mission must continue to go forward. In fact, what you reach, if you ever meet missionaries who they, you know, and I love them, who, you know, learn a language and cross an ocean and say goodbye to the family, a large part of what they do is they realize, wait, Jesus said that he's not coming back until every nation has heard of him. And I long for Christ to come back so much. So I want to hasten the day by sharing the gospel with those who've never heard. That, that's the foundation. You wonder, what, what are these? There's a connection. Here's what I'm trying to say. There's a connection between the return of Christ and hold the rope. The, the, there's a connection between the return of Christ and missions. And look what he says next. He says, and brother will deliver, verse 12, this is intense. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You know, when I was on this trip in Israel, I was with a bunch of pastors from California. And one of the things they told me, that was, which I found interesting, because I don't know if the future of our nation is gonna look more like, you know, is the future of our nation gonna look more like Florida or California? We don't know. But, um, but he said in California, what's happening now is he said there's a lot of these lawyers, these high-level lawyers who are Christians, who are for free representing parents. Because in California, I'm not saying everywhere, I don't know all the details, but parents are losing their rights with their kids. If a kid says he wants to do something, if a kid feels like he's a certain gender, if a kid, da, 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 it's like mom and dad no longer have any authority. An evil nation is that which tries to divide parents from their children and children from their parents. Jesus warned us of this. All right, in verse 14 through 23, it's just too much to read. Basically, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. And here's what I want you to see. You can read it later. One of the interesting things he says is he says, and he gets very specific even in geography. He says in verse 14, he says, basically when the temple is destroyed, he says, I want you to flee to Judea. Now this is interesting because historically what we, one of the questions people ask is how did we have all these, if Rome was sacked in 70 AD and there were so few Christians, how did Christianity survive when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple? And what we understand is actually, you know, the Christians remembered what Jesus taught and they fleed when this happened. Now here's the question that every Christian has to answer. When do you flee and when do you stay when there's persecution? Like when do you go, I gotta get out of this job? When do you go, I gotta get out of this state? You know, when do you go, I gotta get out of this school? Well, I think you need to be led by the spirit, wise counsel, word of God, all that. Um, Don Carson, Don Carson is a guy, he's a theologian, New Testament scholar. He studied the life of the apostle Paul. And it's interesting, if you read Paul's letters and then you read Acts, sometimes Paul leaves. Like there's this time where he's getting persecuted and he goes down through a basket. It's like, what's that about? Then you read later in Acts, and he gets stoned. Not that type of stone. They threw stones at him, okay? <laughs> he gets stoned, and he gets back up and goes into the same city. There's another time where he's about to go somewhere, and this prophet comes and wraps him up with a, a belt and says, uh, if you go here, they're going to, they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, basically imprison you, and you're going to suffer. And he says, why, why are you breaking my heart? I got to go. I have to preach the gospel. So the, as he looked at Paul's life, and he said, when did Paul flee? And when did Paul stay? He said the best thing he could tell is he fleed when if he stayed, he fleed when if he would have stayed, it would have caused harm to other people. And he fleed if he was with other people so that they could be safe. But when Paul was alone and by himself, he was willing to stay and he was willing to suffer. This is often, by the way, why it's usually single people 
as a general rule, who go to the hardest places in the world. I mean, sometimes they'll get, missionaries will get a phone call, we need somebody for the stands. Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, all the stands. They need to be single. Because there's going to be a type of suffering and a type of intensity that was probably not designed for the family. So these are all questions. Jesus is telling us, sometimes you gotta flee, sometimes you gotta stay. Persecution is coming, be faithful to bring the gospel. But then look what he says. Verse 24, here's where he gets to the return. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This is apocalyptic language. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds. This is talking about the return of Christ with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I just want to talk to us for a few minutes here about the return of Christ. Um, When I talk about the return of Christ, I feel crazy. I I feel like I'm talking about something that makes me feel like a weirdo, even when I'm talking about it in church. I I think we forget that we are a part of a supernatural story. I mean, you you already believe in a virgin birth, right? You believe that a teenager got pregnant without ever having sexual relations and had the son of God. You already believe that Jesus Christ lived a completely sinless life, though no one else has ever done that. You already believe that Jesus Christ hung on a cross and all of the sins of the world at one time were paid for in his death. You already believe that a dead guy rose again. What's so hard about believing he's gonna come from the sky riding on a white horse? Every Christian has always believed, this is not a secondary doctrine. Like every once in a while I'll tell you, like, hey, Christians disagree, some think this. This is not one of those. Every Christian believes that Jesus Christ is going to come back suddenly, visibly, bodily, from the sky at the end of time. Let me just say that one more time. Every Christian has always believed that Jesus Christ is going to come back suddenly. We're not supposed to. It's unexpectedly. He's going to come back suddenly, visibly, bodily, from the sky at the end of time. And this should have an unbelievable effect on us. Like, you know, I'm, I'm teaching on this last night. My wife was here. She's at the Saturday night service. And afterwards, you know, and I still got a little bit of sermon left, so you'll see. But we, we talk about this. We sing a song at the end. We're talking about all this. And, you know, afterwards, uh, we always order pizza on Saturday nights. You know, and I just go pick it up on the way home. And, um, and she said, do you think, like, we just talked about the return of Christ, like, should we eat pizza and watch TV? <laughs> I'm like, I was planning on it, you know? <laughs> um, um, you know, but it was interesting. We, so we went home and, and uh, before we watched TV, um, we, uh, we had a conversation with our kids about the return of Christ. And one of our kids started crying. And we're still trying to figure out exactly why, what's going on there, but it should have an effect on you. You know, are you ready? You know, it's like, what death is to an individual, the return of Christ is to everybody. 
That's what it is. What death is to the individual, the return of Christ is to all humanity. And so the question is, when you hear the return of Christ, it's like there's nothing that tells you more about your spiritual condition, your current spiritual condition, than how you feel about Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of us, we don't want him to return anytime soon, right? I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I found out that Jesus was going to return, and I think, can I please get married first? Right? There used to be a joke, you don't want to be a bachelor till rapture, right? <laughs> but we think, no, I want, to have, I want to have kids first. I need to make a lot of money first. I, I need to travel the world first. Here's what the return of Christ reminds us. You don't have as much time as you think. And there should be a healthy, he could return. This is our hope. Here's what he's telling us. This is so helpful. We need that day, the return of Christ, to help us get through this day. That, that's, that's been the Christian's hope. And we, we know this because all of us have little that days when you just need a big that day, right? We all have little that days that help us get through. So you're struggling in school and that day is graduation, right? That, that day is um, the beginning of summer break. You could remember that. It's like, uh, we got a finals. And what helps me get through this day is, is knowing that day's coming. For some people, it's retirement. My career, my job, four more years, we'll have enough. We can, that, that day is coming so I can get through this day, right? The last diaper that, that someone has in your home, right? <laughs> the, the final kid off the payroll. Some of you go, yeah, say it again, Kyle. <laughs> Let me just close my eyes as you say that. <laughs> we, need, we need that day to get through this day. He tells us one other thing. He tells us in light of this to stay awake. Let's look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father, right? If someone tells you, I know when Christ is gonna return, I know the exact day, that is for sure the day he's not returning, okay? That's it. That's what it like there was a book written in the 80s called 88 Reasons That Jesus Is Gonna Come Back in 1988. It didn't happen. Some of you go, whoo, yeah, no. Um, that book obviously is not a bestseller anymore, right? So he says, look here. <laughs> yeah, not a bestseller. Uh, look at verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake. Here it is, guys. Four times going to say it. Keep awake. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you, the opposite of awake, asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Keith Green, he was a famous songwriter. He died in the 80s. He wrote a song about the church, a critique of the church, and he said, the church is asleep in the light. And he said, we have all this knowledge and we have all this truth and we are just asleep. What it... What do you need to be spiritually awake? Uh, you know, usually you know what you need to be physically awake. Right? Some of you are like, I five-hour energy drink, you know, my mocha choco frappuccino in the morning, double shot. You know, you, you know what you need to be physically awake. Some of you go, I need enough sleep. Some of you, I need my routine. The Bible says that we are to be spiritually awake and spiritually alert. And I think some of us are spiritually drowsy or spiritually asleep. Let me just ask you, how do you feel if Jesus Christ were to come back tomorrow, how does that make you feel? 
Let me ask you this. What do you need to do? So if, if you knew Jesus Christ, let's throw it out just a little farther. Jesus Christ is coming back sometime before Christmas. That's just a little bit over a month. Because the Bible says you should be, there should be a sense in which you're anticipating and expecting it, right? I've heard the best illustration is a couple who's about nine months pregnant, eight and a half, nine months pregnant. They know the baby comes 36 to 40 weeks, but the baby could come early. The baby could come on the due date. The baby could come a week or two late. Well, what do you do when you know the baby's when you're getting about the eighth or ninth month? You don't stop everything you're doing. You're still working. You're still having you know, friendships. You're still going out. You're still going to the grocery store. But in the back of your mind is always this feeling he could return. The Bible tells us three things that we should be doing in light of the return of Christ. Let me just give you these as we begin to close. The first thing is we should be dealing with sin in our life. You don't have as much time as you think. What is it that you would need to get rid of in your life, that you need to get serious about, that you, there's an urgency? If Jesus Christ came back tomorrow, I wouldn't want to have to still be talking to him about this. I'd want to say, this is done in my life. Secondly, how about, how about this? If Jesus Christ came back tomorrow, who do you need to talk to today? I mean, that's what my wife was saying. It's like, where are our kids at? You know, we had that conversation last night. We got a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old. We're like, are they ready? You think you have more time. We often think we have more time than we do. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, it's done. It's over. It's the same thing that death is to you. It's done. There's no more time. And the third thing is, so there's three motivations to the return of Christ. Number one, take sin seriously. Keep your life pure. He could come back and he wants to find you ready. Secondly, it's keep the mission clear. Some of you go, man, I've got to talk to my dad. You know, we said to our kids last night, we would like us all to go to heaven as a family. And we don't know when Christ is returning. And we want everyone to be ready. And then third, it's to be a comfort. It's to be a comfort in our lives through all of the suffering, right? How many of us, is the suffering is like, we don't want to stay awake, so you drink too much. It's the opposite of staying awake. You don't want to stay awake, so you just binge Netflix. You don't want to stay awake, so you're just looking forward to your next vacation. Martin Luther, the famous monk turned Reformation leader, he said about the return of Christ, he said, I feel as though Jesus Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. What an amazing thought. What if we live that way? I feel as though the cross is so real, it's like he died yesterday. The resurrection is so invigorating, I feel like it happened today. The return of Christ is so preeminent in my thinking, I feel like it might happen tomorrow. Well, guys, part of the way we stay awake is by staying together. By, this is part of a reminder each week for us to stay awake. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing a song at the end. It's a song called Maranatha. You go, what does Maranatha mean? It's one of the only Aramaic words in your New Testament. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote in Greek, except in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he switches from writing to Greek and he writes one word in Aramaic, Maranatha, which means, O Lord, come. The end of the entire Bible is, the, is Jesus says to John at the very end, he says, I'm coming quickly. By the way, he says, my reward is with me. And the apostle John just can't handle it. He writes down as the final words, oh Lord, come, amen. What I wanna do is I wanna pray for us to make those three commitments, to be pure in our lives, to be clear in our mission, to, be, to endure in suffering. And then I want us to stand and I want us to sing this song together. Let's do it. Lord, those are the three commitments we wanna make in light of the return of Christ. They're the three commitments that Christians should be doing anyway, Lord. We want our mission to be clear. 
we have kids to talk with. We have, we have, some of us need to look at our marriage and go, if Christ is returning tomorrow, we need to get some things straight in our marriage. If Christ were returning tomorrow, we need to get some things straight in our finances. Lord, for others, it's we, we've, we, we just have some conversations to have with people. Some of us want to be reconciled. We don't want Christ returning. We're still unreconciled with our brother. And then Lord, give us that day to look to as we just, we don't know all the suffering that's happening, all the natural and moral evil that's going to come to us the future persecutions, all of that, Lord, we need to be looking to that day to help us get through this day. Would you give us grace to do it? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.